Hey, welcome to this uh, session here at uh, Harbor Pepperdine Bible Lectures 2018. Maybe, uh, I don't know if they're planning to drop the uh, subtitle at some point, but anyway. Uh, how, do you, how do you feel about the new name? Everybody getting used to it? Yeah. All right, great. So, it, it is, isn't it? Just one word to type. That. So, uh, welcome to this class uh, entitled The Spirit of God in the Old Testament. Um, that title may be a little bit um, narrower than all the things that we may talk about. Please come on in. We only have one empty chair at the moment, but you're certainly welcome uh, to crowd it any old way you can. Now, I do need to start with a little bit of a disclaimer uh, here. This uh, particular presentation has been rated H. Uh, by the uh, Classification and Rating Administration for a, a pervasive use of the Hebrew language throughout. So I will be doing uh, a little bit of controlled speaking in tongues here uh, in, just a, uh, in just a few minutes. It's really important, and I, I generally don't like to get too deep into the weeds uh, into the Hebrew language when I'm just trying to teach a Bible class. But um, in this particular case, we really have to. We really have to talk about the phrasing because that will help you understand uh, how uh, different angles on, on certain passages might yield different sorts of um, perceptions. And you know, uh, we use, in, even in English, different people use the same word to mean different things. And the same person can use a single word to mean different things, right? So to illustrate that, what do you see on the screen here? What are these? Chips. What are these? Okay, so you're clearly all Americans, right? Because uh, Americans see, or at least uh, U.S. Americans see chips and fries, right? Whereas Brits see crisps and chips. Yes. Yes? Okay. So this is going to be important for us to keep this in mind that sometimes the same word may refer to different things. And even Americans don't always uh, use this consistently, right? So if we're talking about uh, chips and guacamole, these are chips. If we're talking about fish, these are chips, right? Even in American English, even here in Southern yes. California. So when we Christians use the word spirit, or Spirit of God, our mind tends, I think, to go almost immediately to a Trinitarian perspective, right? And we think about a, one of the persons of the Trinity as the Holy Spirit. Um, but it turns out that the word Spirit can be used in a lot of different ways, even in English. So we think about uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Uh, we might also talk about restless spirits if you're into, you know, haunted house tours in New Orleans or anything uh, like that. We might think about school spirit, and we would use the same word. We might even think about, no, we wouldn't. We're all good church and Christ people. <laughs> We're not thinking about distilled spirits uh, to use this word. The point being, you might think of mineral spirits to strip paint off of uh, an old dresser. The, the point being, the word spirit in English means a lot of different things. We can use it in a lot of different ways. And um, the same thing is true of the word ruach in Hebrew, the word ruach. Now, I see a gentleman taking photographs of these slides, which is perfectly fine. However, let me just mention to you that there's a PDF available online that you can uh, download, and the way you download that is bit.ly, bit.ly slash otspirit18, and you can just, you can have the, the PDF right there, and uh, that would save you from any distortions due to uh, the rippling of the screen or whatever. So this word right here, I'm oh, sorry, bit, bit.ly, bit.ly slash otspirit18, run that all together like one word. So this Hebrew word is ruach. We say ruach. Everybody say ruach. 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 Yeah, good. Okay. So ruach. And in biblical Hebrew, the basic meaning of ruach, the basic physical material meaning of ruach is wind. Okay? Basic physical material meaning is wind. And by extension, breath. So the wind that goes in and out of the human body, the breath. Um, by extension of that... Uh, since breath is so intimately connected with life, uh, we get an extended meaning where ruach, when in relation to a, uh, a sentient being, refers to 
or can refer to that sentient being's sense of self. Right? So you might get in the Psalms, you might get uh, a psalmist talking to or about their own spirits. They're talking, that's, that's how you say, you know, I says to myself, uh, uh, so, so self I says, but in biblical Hebrew you say spirit, my spirit says, uh, to express that sense of, uh, of self. Uh, then another sense of ruach is uh, an individual component of that sense of self, some quality that you have within you. You might think about the New Testament phrase, God has not given us a spirit of fear, right? So that's, ruach is used in that sense uh, to mean a, a quality of something. And then um, it, it appears to be the case that the Old Testament also uses the word ruach to refer to uh, disembodied or non-corporeal entities, uh, creatures that we might call angels, this side of uh, uh, the Hellenistic world, this side of Greek, but uh, that they call sometimes uh, ruach. All right, so we have a, a variety, really, of senses, of basic senses this word ruach uh, can, can have. And we need to be aware of those as we look at various passages in the Old Testament. Now, we also need to dig uh, a little bit into some grammar. And uh, I warned you, I put up the big blue screen. So here we go. Um, I need to remind you of the difference in most languages between definite and indefinite nouns. Right? Definite and indefinite. So in English, uh, we say the spirit to mean a particular spirit. That's definite. That's our definite article, right? Uh, anybody feel like you're back in eighth grade? And uh, the <laughs> indefinite, we say a spirit to just refer to any old spirit or the idea of a spirit in general, or we're not specifying a particular spirit, right? There. So a spirit, but uh, that's the indefinite article. Now, in Hebrew, what we do is we say for the definite, we say ha-ruach. So the ha on the front makes it definite. But look at this. This is actually important. There's no indefinite article in Hebrew. To say a spirit, we just say spirit. Right? That's going to become important when we put it together with another little tidbit from Hebrew later on. Now, this is where we really get deep into the Hebrew weeds. And I, I do apologize if you uh, start to glaze over a little bit here. <laughs> uh, but in Hebrew, you have a particular kind of construction. Hebrew is biblical Hebrew. I, I sometimes describe it as an adjective-poor language. It doesn't have as many adjectives attested in Biblical Hebrew as we would kind of expect uh, from the way that we write and read in, in English. And so there are other uh, ways to express this relationship. Uh, there are also a number of relationships uh, between words that we in English express using prepositions and Hebrew expresses using word order instead. So there are fewer words. But that does make it more ambiguous at times. So we have this relationship between two nouns called the supported noun and the supporting noun. Right? And then when you put those side by side, you just put them in order. Sometimes you change the spelling of this word just a tiny bit. And you get an implied relationship for which there is no word in between, where we in English would don't normally put a word in between. So for example, here's uh, maybe several examples here, as you can see. We're going to fill this whole thing up. So here's an example, shor ish. Now, this is, you see the arrow, everybody? This is Hebrew. So we're going right to left. Yes? Right <laughs> to the left. Okay, so shor ish. Um, shor means an ox. Ish means a man. So woodenly, this is an ox, a man. But by putting them in this relationship, it's an ox belonging to a man, a man's ox. Okay? Now, if we want to say the ox, it's a specific ox, we, don't, we can't actually literally do that in Hebrew grammar. What we have to do is say the man. And so if we say the man, uh, well, I'm going to use a different example here. Shem Ha'ir, name the city. So the name of the city. Notice how the the is actually literally attached to the city, but it is shared by the supported now, that is shared backwards, like some kind of weird transitive property, all right? So what that sort of means is there is no way to say unambiguously a name of the city, okay? That's going to be important here in just a minute. Another example here, how would we say something like the king of Israel? 
the king of Israel. All right, we say that Melech Yisrael. Uh, oh boy, in English it's definite. There's no ha in there, but Israel is a proper noun, and proper nouns are inherently definite. So it's this is the king of Israel. It's also a king of Israel, right? So if I want to say an Israelite man or the Israelite man, we say Ish Yisrael. No difference. So if I'm trying to tell a joke, you know, uh, Ish Yisrael, Ish Moab, Ish Amon, walk into a bar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ish Yisrael says, so I, I don't, in English I'd be switching back and forth between the man and a man. After I introduce him as a man, I'd switch over to the man. In, in Hebrew we don't change the wording uh, there. And then what I was saying about adjectives becomes important here at the end. And that is, in many cases, since we don't have certain adjectives that we might want to use in biblical Hebrew, instead what we do is bind uh, nouns together. So you don't literally say in the commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness. What you literally say is, thou shalt not bear a testimony of falsehood. Right? Or a testimony that is characteristic of falsehood, or that has characteristics of falsity in it. All right, so that's how we uh, compensate for the lack of adjectives a lot of times in Biblical Hebrew. Okay, now I know that is a lot of Hebrew to hit you with, but it becomes important because one of the implications for what we're studying this afternoon is this. If we want to say a variety of things, if we want to say God's self, God's feelings, God's sort of internal experience of God, sense of being who God is. God's breath, which is usually used metaphorically uh, to mean either a spirit or a non-corporeal entity sent by God, or a wind sent by God, or a God-like quality that God has infused, or if we even just want to say a, a really, really powerful gale force wind, we say those all exactly the same way in Biblical Hebrew. All of those phrases are said by this little phrase right here, Ruach Elohim, or you might say, this Elohim might be replaced by uh, the name of God, the four-letter name of God, uh, or it might be replaced by Adonai, Lord. It could be replaced by um, uh, a possessive pronoun like my or your. You could say to God, your, you know, your Ruach or something like that. But all of these senses are expressed using these same pair of words. So this now is where, uh, is where I exploit the fact that the name has changed from Bible Lectures to Harvard. And I'm going to stop lecturing for a minute. So instead what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you all to look at some passages. We're going to divide into groups. Uh, you'll look at some passages where uh, oh, the word Ruach Elohim or Ruach Yahweh or uh, something similar appears. Uh, each group will have two or three little paragraphs, and on the handouts there will be, the whole paragraph will be typed out, though I'm confident that you all have Bibles available if you want to look a little bit at the larger context. We will not have a lot of time to be able to do this, so you'll have to work fast. Um, but everybody will be asked the same questions about different passages. And the questions are, uh, as you read these passages, look for a ruach in these passages, and what does it do in these passages, uh, in these paragraphs? Second, in your judgment, which of various possible senses of these phrases seems to be at work in these passages? And third, how did you arrive at that conclusion? however firm or tentative it may be. So um, I think, I, you know, I don't know if we have exactly, uh, exactly a multiple of five in here today. Um, I counted about 35 or 36, I think there's supposed to be 35 or 36 chairs available, so maybe we have 37, I don't know. Uh, so we'll just do the best we can here. I'll try to give about uh, seven copies of each color out and I'll try to group you all together. I just, you know, seven uh, greens over here and so forth. So I'm just going to hand these out just as quickly as I can and give you about uh, 10 minutes 
to talk about these things. So if y'all can find about seven people approximately. Pardon me, sir. Bring the lights back up. Yeah. Uh, let me have a point, if you don't mind. And let's see. So that's uh, three and four. Yeah, that's about seven people. So if you don't mind sharing these, approximately seven people. Let's see Let's put you over. Are you guys okay? If I can have the white ones, the white ones. Yeah, I'm having my hair back. Oh, okay. So let's see. The four. You know, you may want to divide up differently. Um, however, it's best. You know, however you can best sort of group up here. Let's way over here. So, you know, where should we start? The blue or the blue? I wrote it down. How many people have green? How many people have green papers? Greens. Seven greens. We have seven greens. How many ivories? We all have a good. Are able to sort of visit with each other there? And are our purples able to sort of? We're thinking that this one is the individual component or quality that you have. That sounds about right. Eight blues, nine blues, and only six. That was the first one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's best if it's approximately even. So let me invite you to take about 10 minutes to try to come to some tentative conclusions in your groups. And if you want to break down into smaller groups, if it's awkward for all seven or eight people to speak, just break it down into subgroups of three or four. Just make sure everybody you're visiting with right now has the same color pages. Try to get, uh, I heard something right here that I want to comment on real quick. Try to get everybody talking about all of them. Um, because uh, the, the point really is to see what the commonalities are in some ways between the three passages. It seems very personal. Sure. It seems very Personal yeah. 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 Thank you. 
not like quality would be like, I mean, I would be a character trait or something. You know, quality is very quality is very But God, like, I can't But it's God. It's
who might be hanging around. In case you have not figured it out yet. <laughs> we can take a white. So, for the next several minutes, what I'm asking you all to do is uh, that each of you, now, not each of you, literally, if there were a group of five, a perfect group of five that had one representative from each color, then the ideal way to do this would be for each person to share with the others what your group did and what uh, tentative conclusions you reached. So one person per color per group. Please share with the rest of your group what your previous monocolored group did and was thinking when I called. Uh, we'll take about 10 minutes for this as well. 10 to 12 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> 
So could I just have a, um, a representative who had, somebody who had a green paper, just one person, share with us kind of where your group was thinking around this circle here. I think I've been volunteered. All right. Um. <laughs> now we do need to do these pretty pretty promptly. We are getting lowish on time. So if you can limit yourself to about one minute, but just tell us which direction y'all were trending in thinking about Ruach in these passages. Okay, we were seeing it primarily as... Uh, the godlike quality being instilled in a person, the creative quality, because in each one of those passages, someone is accomplishing something, building something, mm -hmm. shaping something. And did you happen to notice that in both cases, they're not just building stuff and shaping stuff, they're crafting things related to the, the worship temple. space, yes. right? Mm -hmm. Okay, fantastic. How about uh, our, is this pink? Does that look pink? 
Is that ivory? I'm not sure. <laughs> Who had numbers 11? That was the ivory colored ones? Yeah. 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 Okay, so uh, numbers 11 is about uh, Eldad and Medad. Remember those guys behaving somewhat unexpectedly in the Israelite camp? Numbers 24 is the story, uh, part of the Balaam story. And 1 Samuel 10 is a, a little snippet from Saul's earliest encounters with the prophet Samuel. So who's going to uh, give us about one minute from the ivory groups about kind of which direction y'all were leaning in these passages? So we, uh, we had a little disagreement there <laughs> in the camp. Uh, so now uh, we're on the east side and the west side. Now we're east and west. So it was a corporal spirit, God's being maybe, or a godlike quality, and I, I risk of being kicked out, I say slash ability. So. Okay, so you were Quality. kind of on this, uh, in this yeah, there you go. Uh, area down here, but we're having some trouble making uh, yeah. specific distinctions, okay? Uh, now, in, in case anybody didn't pick up on this, you know what's going on here is people prophesied, yeah. right? People prophesied because a Ruach is influencing them. All right, so the purple or lilac uh, group was looking at Judges chapter 11 which is Jephthah and his victory over the Ammonites, and it's got that, that rash vow that he takes in the middle of that paragraph. Judges chapter 14, uh, the particular passage was Samson's victory uh, over the lion, when he fights the lion, and then 1 Samuel 11 is the way Saul reacts when he hears that the Israelite city of uh, Jabesh Gilead, or Jabesh in Gilead, is um, under siege. And so in all of these cases, there is a ruach that does something purple group what does the ruach do and which direction were you going and characterizing what that ruach is one person with a purple page i got pointed at um so <laughs> in this case the ruach incites someone to action and they act strongly and rashly or quickly um and i think we were learning towards a godlike quality um because there's the super strength there's the um well, yeah, the super strength with, with Samson, but also, like, Jephthah wins the battle and um, that kind of thing. And um, because with Samson, the wording was Ruach Yahweh rushed on him, um, it did come up, was that, like, a wind? Um, but I still think we could put them all in godly quality. Okay, so you all were tending that direction. Did everybody notice that what the Ruach does in these passages is to incite somebody to violence. Yeah. And generally, some kind that they uh, wouldn't ordinarily be associated with. In other words, to a level of, um, of capability that they did not previously have. The blue team was looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, which narrates a little bit about what happens to King Saul after he's rejected by God, and that news is delivered to him by Samuel. And 1 Kings chapter 22 is the story of Micaiah ben Imla, not to be confused with Micah, the prophet who has a book named after him in the Bible, but Micaiah ben Imla, uh, who has a message for King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat. And this is that weird, weird story where Micaiah sees a vision of uh, angels and spirits uh, making, basically putting in bids for who's going to go down and make sure Ahab gets killed. Um, and the, uh, well, the winner is the one who uh, will go down and force his prophets to uh, lie to him. So, uh, Blue Team, which, uh, what did you see Ruach's doing, and which direction did you go with Ruach in this passage? Just one person with a blue page, please. You're up, no, you're it. I'm <laughs> it. I'm it. It's uh, the Spirit of God in uh, 1 Samuel uh, departs uh, Saul. And then um, we had a little disagreement on this one. Evil, some, either some kind of evil spirit uh, then went into uh, King Saul, or in my opinion, an evil disposition. And then in 1 Kings 22, that's an angel. And this okay. angel is going to enter a false prophet and cause him to lie. Okay, so it sounds like you were kind of leaning this way for at least the, uh, the newcomers in these, the new Ruachs that come, not the one that leaves, and you were thinking more um, in terms of God's own self or presence for the spirit that leaves Saul, did I have that right, more or less, blue team? Oh, right. And then pink uh, team, or sorry, this is, this is lavender now? No, this is pink. This is straight up pink. 
Um, Exodus chapter 15, the crossing of the sea with Pharaoh's armies in pursuit. And Isaiah 40, uh, which is that famous uh, line about, you know, comfort my people Israel. And then you have the line about how the grass withers and the flowers fade because of a ruach. Surely all people are grass. And then Hosea 13 also talking about the fate of um, Israel back in the 8th century. So, pink team, what does a ruach do and which direction were you leaning around this circle about uh, sort of how to characterize that, that ruach? I think we thought that uh, most of them were, seemed like literal uh, winds, mighty godlike wind, but perhaps um, uh, metaphorical to describe the action of God. Right, so would you say a physical wind sent by God? Or yeah. are you saying something a little bit different than that? Um, uh, if I say yes. You know, what I want to hear is what y'all were talking about. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting that um, you see different things in different passages, right? And that's really one of the major uh, things that I wanted to share with you is how much variety there is in this simple phrase and in the way the phrase is used. And so how important it is, you know, to think in terms of, uh, of context. But now we come back to this question about uh, not very many of you said that you were seeing God's own self or sense of identity or, or internal feelings in these particular passages. Uh, and in part because I chose passages where there were several passages I could cluster together and you would see something similar, right? Um, and, and this expression does happen. So when we think about um, a Trinitarian view of Holy Spirit, would it, can, can it be fairly non-controversial to say this is something that Jesus reveals that people didn't really know much about before? Yeah. Can we all be on board with that without too much controversy? Okay, so the, I mean, the truth of it is true whether, no matter who knows about it, right? But the, the, what I'm talking about is what people understand, what people perceive, and what people talk about. So what about this, this phrase, Holy Spirit, right? Do we encounter that anywhere in the Old Testament? Well, remember this chart from before? All right, if we were going to say Holy Spirit, what would we do? Well, what we would have to do is uh, one of a couple of different things. Um, a phrase that really does appear in the Bible is this one, Ruach Kodesh, spirit something, some kind of implied relationship, and the noun holiness. Right? So this is not the adjective holy, this is the noun holiness. So spirit of holiness, and that of could be almost anything that was on that previous chart um, before. Now, that's a spirit characterized by holiness. If you wanted to say the Spirit, like there's one in particular that's characterized by holiness in no other way, or in a way that no other spirit would be, uh, no other ruach would be. What you would say is ruach ha kodesh, and um, you know, quite frankly, depending on what uh, what bookstores you shop at, you might have seen you know the phrase ruach ha kodesh on a coffee mug or a poster of names of God or something like that. Sorry, that doesn't actually appear in the Bible. Really? In the Old Testament. Where do we get it? From the Hebrew translation of the New Testament, the modern Hebrew translation of the New Testament. That's where that term comes from. It does not actually appear in the Old Testament. Now, there is a genuine adjective for holy in, the old, in uh, Biblical Hebrew, uh, which is pronounced kadosh instead of kodesh. So you could, in theory, say, uh, say, ruach kadosh, to say a holy spirit. That's, or you could say, to say the Holy Spirit. However, neither of those phrases actually appears in the Old Testament. So if you're looking for the specific phrase, Holy Spirit, in the Old Testament, you're only going to find it in this form, Ruach Kodesh, and then a, another marker right here that is a possessive suffix. So uh, His Holy Spirit or your Holy Spirit is where you actually find it. And just one question, let me get out where those are. Uh, you find those in Psalm 51, which you may be familiar with already. Take out your Holy Spirit from me, right? And in Isaiah chapter 63, uh, which is where, uh, where your eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. 
uh, and the tramping out of the vintage of the grapes of wrath and all that stuff. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask you about Psalm 51. Yeah, the let's, Holy look, let's look at Psalm 51 real quick. Because Psalm 51 11, in most of our English translations, reads something like this. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit uh, from me. Now this Holy Spirit, this is a tricky phrase in Hebrew because it's Ruach Konshikah. And what that means is Spirit of holiness of you. Okay, now untangling that is a little bit difficult because there's basically two things that could mean. Spirit of your holiness or your spirit of holiness. The your could attack, could uh, could uh, relate to the Ruach or the, or the, uh, the Kodesh. Um, and so it's a little bit difficult to kind of understand what that is. So just for a minute, let's just substitute in some Hebrew sounding stuff right there. Let's just put Ruach Kodeshka uh, right there where the English normally is and look at the verses around it. Because that's not the only Ruach in this psalm. Right? Psalm 51, 10, created me a clean heart, O God, right? And put a new and right spirit, new and right Ruach within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take Ruach from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain a willing Ruach within me. You actually have Ruach in all three lines. Right? So taking this one, uh, this one line and sort of thinking about it um, using our Christian vocabulary, uh, it's easy for us to see the psalmist talking about uh, the Holy Spirit as we think about the Holy Spirit in a Trinitarian framework. But what this psalmist seems to be talking about, rather it seems to me, uh, to lean much more in the direction of uh, what we were calling before kind of a personal quality uh, that has been infused by God Okay, but it's not the same as God, God's own self, right? But is this quality of, of rightness, of holiness, of willingness to be in line with, um, with God's will. So let's think about Isaiah 63 also real quick. Now Isaiah 63 is a fairly long passage uh, to go through in order to see everything kind of in its context. Now Isaiah 63, um, the setting, so to speak, you have... Uh, some group of believers, I think very strongly that we're talking about Judeans who have returned from Babylonia, or whose parents or grandparents maybe have returned from Babylonia. They're in the post-exilic generations, but they're looking back at Moses and the Exodus as a kind of analogy for the experience they have had of leaving, uh, of leaving Babylon. Right? So 63.7 starts, I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts, and all that, the, that God has, um, has done for us. Uh, so I'm just going to start reading from verses 7 uh, through 14, and at certain points I will put certain verses within that on the screen. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all the Lord has done for us, and the great favor to the house of Israel, that he has shown them according to his mercy according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior in all their distress. It was no messenger or angel, but his presence that saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, he lifted them up and carried them all in the days of old. Uh, but they rebelled. Now remember, again, this is many, many generations later looking back at the Exodus event. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And therefore he became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Then they remembered the days of old, of Moses his servant. Where is the one who brought them up out of the sea with shepherds of his flock? Where is the one who put within them his Holy Spirit? who caused his glorious arm to march out at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble like cattle that go down into the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. Thus you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. All right, so these are the other two examples where we have that phrase, uh, Ruach Kodesh, in the Old Testament. And it is not altogether clear to me what to do with them in terms of that, uh, that sort of wheel we had up there before, different senses of, of Ruach. 
But I taking a cue from verse 9, verse 9 is really insisting that when God delivered the, the Israelites with Moses uh, in tow, that this was not a mediated experience. In a sense, God didn't send an angel to go do that. God didn't send somebody else. Well, I mean, he sent Moses, but, but not a, not a different supernatural being or celestial being might be a better way to say that. A different spirit, right? So what I see in Isaiah 63 uh, is, is the sense, mostly I think the sense of God's own self. That his Holy Spirit, meaning himself, who has the quality inherently and unchangeably of being holy. Um, and that there is this analogy being drawn between the Exodus generation and the poet's current generation where uh, the people are not behaving in appropriate ways and they're looking for this sense of God being personally present among them. So, uh, in my view, I would say that really this is probably the place where we get closest to the kind of Trinitarian view of uh, the language, of using the language of spirit to uh, name God. But really, the, uh, the Trinitarian concept of Holy Spirit is really a New Testament thing, and um, these other kind of things we've been talking about are an Old Testament thing. So we get closest to that sense of, of Holy Spirit as almost a synonym for God, if you will, in Old Testament language, in those passages where the Ruach of God is, is a reference to God's own personality, to God's own self, I mean, almost a synonym for God's presence in some ways. Uh, but most of the time, what we have instead, most of the time what we have instead is uh, when we encounter a spirit of God, spirit of the Lord, my spirit, your spirit, his spirit, that kind of language, it usually, it seems to me, it's usually God sending one of these other senses of Ruach, uh, be that a physical wind at the Exodus, be that this uh, apparently either corporeal being or some kind of disposition that torments Saul, any of those things, uh, that God sends one of these other kinds of Ruach to, now, to, here's the common thread on all those pages, to affect some kind of transformation. Right? Now, sometimes this transformation is harmful to the person that's being transformed, like Saul. Or like the grass that withers and the flower that fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Um, but more often it is some kind of enabling that person to do something that, uh, that they could not do. So, when we talk about the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, what's going on? Usually it's God sending uh, one of these senses of Ruach to effect some kind of uh, transformation. Y'all, I have successfully reached the end of my... Uh, planned comments four minutes or moving closer to three and a half before the end of the class which means I could if you wish entertain some questions please be aware I proposed this topic because it fit the theme not because I consider myself an expert on this particular uh, topic in the Old Testament and once again here is if you want to download the PDF version of the slideshow right here, bit.ly slash otspirit18. Do any of you want to post questions right now or offer comments right now as we go? Victoria, you first. I know your name because it's on your name. Um, I have a question. Can you speak a little bit more about that Isaiah 63 passage? Because it looks to me like most of the common translations I'm familiar with uh, translate it, the angel of his presence saved them. Um, but you opted for like the NIV's alternative of no angel. I was wondering if you could um, dig into that. Yeah, if I had my Hebrew Bible here, I probably could. Um, in, in Isaiah 63, I don't feel super confident that I know exactly what's going on. Um, but uh, I was really following, and all of the quotations up here are really uh, cribbing the NRSV, except where Ruach appears and flipping Ruach. So uh, that would be a good way to test whether or not I'm moving in the right direction, is to look more deeply. Which version did you say? NRSE. New Revised Standard Version. Thank you. One of the quotes, something you alluded to is. Sometimes that change or metamorphosis um, is going to be not great for the person receiving that rock, or you know the change is going to bring about uh, some hardship. And we're usually not comfortable putting God in the place who is the one causing hardship to others. So can you speak to that? 
Uh, well, I can agree with you that we're usually not comfortable with that, Jill. But uh, but the ancient Israelites, I know your name because I saw the name. Right, right. But uh, the the um, the ancient Israelites, or at least the biblical authors, were totally comfortable with that. And why are they so comfortable with that? Because they really are monotheists. Yes. And uh, we have, in some ways, gotten away from that. To them, if in their mind, and according to the teachings of the prophets, if anything happens. Where does the buck stop? The buck stops with God, right? So, um, so we uh, love to sing, you know, God is so good, God is so good, He's so good to me. We love to say, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. We don't much like to quote from Isaiah, I am the Lord and there is no other. I make light and darkness. I make weal and woe. There is no other besides me. We don't much like to quote Amos. Does a lion roar? You know, is a city destroyed if the Lord has not done it? Does the lion roar if he has no prey? So um, I would say that, that that is a difference in our outlook and that the uh, ancient believers who bequeath the Old Testament to us are really much more comfortable with God doing a broader range of actions than we tend to be comfortable with. And I think that's a challenge to us. Uh, to, uh, as, I mean, how many times have you heard already in the first couple of days that the Holy Spirit is not domesticable, right? That God cannot be, um, cannot be tamed. I think we maybe have just a few seconds left. Oh, did y'all want to arm wrestle for it? You, sir. Uh, just a quick question as far as where I can get resources to learn uh, Hebrew. I'm going to, I'd like to go and study the Old Testament. And uh... Oh, boy. Well, um... <laughs> Or, you know, just get the basics of the language. So, the honest truth is, the best way to learn Hebrew is to spend a lot of time around somebody else who knows how to speak Hebrew. And to speak okay. Hebrew. Um, so, quite frankly, I mean, it's not inexpensive. But the best way to do it is to travel to Israel and go to what's called an ulpan. All right, but make sure it's a biblical Hebrew old pond, right. and you'll speak nothing but biblical Hebrew for like three weeks, and then you'll you'll be able to read with some fluency. Um, but uh, that is not practical for most people. So you know, in right. many ways, right. a, a, yeah. like a college course is really usually the next best thing. Okay. Or okay. a maybe there's a local synagogue that would offer offer a course, um, or something like that. It it really it's a long process, it's a slow process, but the very best way to do it is in a group. It's really hard to do. Hello. Thank you. I want to thank you for all your work. This is very awesome. Thank you.